and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about books and ideas and philosophy and whatever we've been thinking about recently. My name is Thomas Magby. I'm joined as always by Mr. Graham Donaldson Hello. and Mr. A.J. Hannenberg. Now, I probably should have looked this up beforehand. We've been at this for a while, right, guys? Mm-hmm. Do you, does anyone know how many episodes we're up to? Ballpark. 238-ish. Somewhere around I think there. around there. Now, 239? something that uh, listeners may not know is that there are some kind of like consistent um, underlying themes that you must listen very closely to all of our recordings to, to, to get the, the, the message behind hmm, it. Okay. Um, now, Graham's going to walk us through some of those principles today, and then you can go back and listen to all 238 hours of us talking and kind of pull out some of those, some of those themes. That's what, that's what you're talking about today, right? We're Graham? talking about hidden secret messages. Yes, <laughs> that are hidden inside. That's right. Yeah, yeah, when you say that there's 238 hours of us talking, that sounds exhausting. That's even understating because we have in-between episodes, plus AMAs. Yeah, it's a lot. People listen to this. Isn't the that... windiest windbags <laughs> has never felt more palpable than yeah, right than now. Right now, yeah. So, I mean, to get through every single episode, you would have to play episode one through episode 238 uh-huh. for like a week and a half straight. Mm. Yeah. No break, right? No break. Yeah, exactly. Add in between episodes and you've got Pushed a couple extra days. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty uh, rough. That's actually, I mean, a week and a half, that's not that much. Uh, in, in two like, weeks in, of, of in, just talking? In seven years or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> however so, long. I mean, we're not that windy. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Does that make you feel better? No. Yeah. No. Oh. Nonstop for however many days you just said? Yeah. Like, that's pretty. That's a lot. I mean, how much do you think you talk a week? Uh, or just generally? Not that much, right? I hope not. I mean, we sleep for eight hours a day. Uh-huh. Roughly, you should. You uh-huh. should, listener. Yeah, thanks. Um, and I'm not talking like all day long, yeah. so. We are on We track. are. <laughs> we're talking. Okay, anyway. So, we are going to be talking about... Um, uh, we're going to be talking about hermeneutics. Mm. We're going to be talking about interpretation. Now, this is going to be um, geared mainly towards the art of interpreting scripture as... Uh, I, I, I realize that I'm like, this episode and the one that I have planned for the next one are both like... I'm really leaning into the rigid dogmatism uh, shtick uh, <laughs> of my persona. I like that. Um, Get criticized for it, and instead of going the other way, you just, just lean in. Own it. Just lean in. But own it. we have it. So a long time ago, we did an episode on this on a live one, and I wanted to sort of just add some thoughts to this. And also because, um, uh, well, well, we'll sort of get to it, um, because I, I think there's uh, the the wrong inter- or the the... the some bad habits of biblical interpretation can very easily creep into churches and people's individual lives and also into like the cultural expression and understanding of Christianity that I think can actually be quite bad. And, um, and maybe we'll save the ones for the, maybe we'll save the ones that I'm really concerned about for the in-between episode. But anyway, there's, oh, whatever, we'll get to it. So how to read and sort of understand the Bible. So the, uh, in the Christian life, there's kind of um, uh, different, there's sort of like three different arenas. We could probably think of others, but there, I sort of think about there's three sort of different arenas where we have the Bible be something that is influencing our sort of faith life. One is your own personal reading of it in some sort of devotional setting. The other one is when it is preached exegetically to a congregation. And so like a pastor or a, a standing up and doing a sermon or giving a homily. Um, and then the last one is when you are trying to put together um, like theological positions about certain topics. Now, those aren't mutually exclusive, but they are sort of three slightly different ways of reading the Bible. 
Now, that is primarily for thinking about it in terms of, like, a Christian believer who is reading scripture. There's also, you can read it just like how you would be reading a historical text by sort of thinking, okay, how did this book come to, came to be? Um, and you can sort of read it in that more academic setting. And uh, I can't think of, is there any others? I don't know, like a narrative? I don't know, like reading it like you would read the Iliad? Like sure, reading it's a like a literary way of yeah. reading scripture yeah. too. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of like, um, when Christians talk about reading the Bible, they're sort of making, they're usually not talking about it in that academic way where it's like, okay, I, I wonder, you know, is the book of Genesis, did, how many sources did it come from? Like, did it, did it, was it pieced together from different kinds of authors or different kinds of writers? Like, that's, that's a way of reading. And then it's very different than if you were going to sort of sit and read, like, the Iliad. When, when, when Christians say reading and interpreting the Bible, they're usually meaning a bunch of different things. So, let's take one at a time here. Let's start with, uh, I don't know which one to start with. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, go for it. You read the Bible differently in those? Like, shouldn't there be a consistency across those I don't three? know. Well, that's oh. actually, I, I kind of think there isn't. Okay. Uh, can, oh, no, um, I think that there are going to be ones that are more important and take precedence, but I think that there is leeway. So I think actually the first one is maybe the, the, the edge case, and that is if you were reading the Bible like for some kind of personal time of devotion, um, this is where I think you you have a little more um, sort of license with the interpreting of something for yourself. So um, let me give you an example. I have a journal at home of um, that I've been keeping since two thousand and five. So for a long time. Long time. Uh, I haven't been. Um, I, it definitely dropped off once I got married. So in 2010, when I got married, um, uh, there's a lot less entries. So from 2005 to 2010, it's like the bulk of it. And then there's like little bits here and there. But it is thoughts, prayers, and basically like writing out conversation between that uh, my, my heart to God while I was reading a specific section in the Bible. Mm. This is not a unique practice. To, like, this is, people do this all the time. Right. There's, um, there's a whole host of different ways of using the Bible for personal devotion. There's Lectio Divina. Maybe mm-hmm. do you want to tell us what Lectio Divina is as the Anglican? Uh, no. I mean, it's a, way no. Of, it's a way of reading scripture. It can mean kind of lots of things, but it's like putting yourself in different places in that story That's right. as you read it. So, so you're, reading the book of La- you're reading the story of Lazarus in John 11, and you are pretending to be there yourself yeah. and trying to like think about what things looked like and felt like and smelled like, and maybe not when you the get tomb lots of, was open, that's but fair. all that stuff. But, you get like, but there are different perspectives within even that one scene. That's so right. So you can kind of rotate through all those. And you're doing that because you're trying to sort of embody that story. Yeah. Um, so... What, for when Christians are doing personal devotion reading, um, sorry, I was going back to this this journal. I go back and I read it, and there are things where I would be reading something in Hosea, where it's talking about, I don't know, like um, Israel being wayward from God. And in my own life, I'd be thinking like that rings true for me in whatever circumstance you're going in. That is... So reading scripture and seeing the different stories or reading yourself into the stories or seeing like, oh man, just like how Israel needed, needs to be saved through the Red Sea, like I can see how that can play out in my life. Like that is a perfectly acceptable thing for 
people to be doing when they're reading the Bible privately. Like, those become problems if you are going to spin that as, like, some kind of reading that you think is authoritative or... Do you sort of get what I'm saying? Like, it's perfectly fine to be, like, convicted of something when you are reading... Let's use Hosea. You're reading Hosea and it's talking about how Israel is like a wayward bride and you are feeling like you are wayward from God. Mm-hmm. The book of Hosea is not about you feeling wayward, sure, right? right? The book of Hosea is about, about God's relationship, God talking to Israel. But if you can read yourself into it, um, that, is a, that, that is what we was talk about when we talk about devotional reading. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, are we tracking? I'm tracking. I'm, yeah. Again, I'll be curious as you move into the further ones. Like, so let's say that's your personal devotion time. You're, you're saying it's inappropriate to then share that with a congregation. Or, or to it would be it. inappropriate to stand up and say that this is what the book of Hosea is about. The book of Hosea is about like how you and me are wayward. I mean, I mean, kind of can, but we, but you're you're jumping some steps. Yeah, I could see it kind of. Like it would be possible for a guy to come up with a sermon that's about marriages and how you need to pursue your wife, right? Yeah, and that's what the Book of Hosea is about. When it's not really, well, it's about not really. That. Yes, and, yeah, and and actually, this is where I think that's a problem. So, um, so the, I think we get into difficulties when we bring different kinds of reading, interpreting of scripture into the into wrong settings, and um, um, yeah. So I think if if uh, okay, so. That's sort of that first personal devotional reading where you are reading this and your end, your goal is to, is to foster some kind of thoughtful reflection on your own relationship with God. That is what devotional reading is for. And I think that we are, you can have a tremendous amount of like um, um, leeway in that um, in personally. Okay. The other one is, and this is what the original uh, episode, if you go back, if you are Googling around, you find one on uh, reading the Bible. Uh, uh, the original uh, episode, I think it was episode 98, where we talk about hermeneutics. And this is, so let's talk about hermeneutics for a second. So if you are going to, this is the art of interpreting the Bible. In hermeneutics, there are, uh, there's sort of classically, if you were sitting in a hermeneutics class in seminary, you'd pretty much be taught like either there's like a five-step method or there's a three-step method. They're both they're essentially the same thing. And a 12-step if you're a drinker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 12-step if, you, if, you, uh, yeah, if you're coming a little sloshed. Um, so we'll go with the five steps. And this is sort of um, – the goal of this is to try to come up to, – to come up with the what does the Bible say about X topic or is to come up with um, sort of a principle – uh, what, what is the, what, what is like the, the Bible say about X, Y, or Z? So this is like a, uh, a hermeneutical approach to try to come up with principle statements. What is the Bible's view on government? What is the Bible's view on money or marriage or these kinds of things, right? Okay. And so the way that you do this is you have these five steps. First of all, you, you have some sort of passage, um, uh, and then the first step is very literally like, what is this thing? What is this passage saying? I probably should have like picked a passage to do this as an example. Uh, I didn't. Um, so like summarize the story of what's happening in this. So if you think of, I don't know, 
um, something in the Old Testament law where it's, I'll use the, the classic one that I think most that get taught a lot in hermeneutics classes is if an, uh, if an ox uh, escapes its pen and gores your neighbor, um, the ox should be put to death. If this has happened more than once, I'm summarizing, if this happens more than once, the person who owns the ox should be punished, either put to death or pay a fine. I think that that's like sort of the passage. Because somebody's skimping on their fences. Because somebody's yes. skimping on their fences, right? Okay, so you have a passage like that. Uh, the first step of interpretation is actually like saying, okay, what is, what is this thing literally saying? Well, in this one, it's saying uh, if the ox escapes and kills somebody, um, uh, the ox should be put to death. If this is a repeatable thing, or now I'm getting ahead of myself, if it happens a second time, uh, the owner of the ox is going to be punished. So first time an accident, second time punished. It's like laying down the basis for negligence law. Yes, and then, then this is what we're moving towards the principle. Um, so then uh, uh, if we're going to do the three-step method, the second question is like, can we turn this passage into a principle statement? Um, and then, and so AJ, this is exactly what it is. The principal statement would be... An accident isn't a big deal once. Yep. But if the accident continues to happen and could have been prevented by somebody, then yep. the guy's responsible. Yep. Uh, another principle we could say is the Bible says you should take care of your things. You should be responsible for that which you own. Or keep pigs instead. Yeah. <laughs> or keep it. Uh, not if you're Jewish. Oh, uh, that's true. Fair enough. That is a good point. Um, keep rabbits. Are rabbits right? kosher? Uh, I don't know. Probably. They don't have cleft hoofs. Quiet Google in the background. Yeah, there's, sure. a, there's a quiet Google. Um, uh, a mammal, wait. A kosher if it has split hooves, is kosher if it has split hooves and chews its cud. It must have both kosher signs. Uh, pigs, rabbits, squirrels, bears, dogs, cats, camels, and horses are not. Oh, no rabbits. That's what it no says. No ponies. All right, well, there you go. And no dogs either. Huh. Well, that's probably, yeah. I, mean, yeah. I love my dog. Well, it's hit and miss. <laughs> Not your dog, just dogs. How dare you? Renny's a great dog. Renny is carved from gold. Renny's a great dog. Um, So then basically what you're trying to come up to is you you take a passage and then you're trying to sort of turn that passage into principled statements, into a state – if you could sort of derive this into a principle. Um, And so you you can do this with all sorts of of any sort of passage you have in scripture. Uh, You run it through that process. Okay, what does it say? If you're doing the five-step method, um, the middle step in between what does it say and how do we turn this into a principle? The middle step is, is there any kind of um, cultural difference, uh, some sort of uh, unknown cultural thing that we as modern people need to become aware of? Like, do we have some sort of um, historical... uh, um, understanding of things that we need to go through. So isn't that one about uh, God would rather you be hot or cold, but since you're lukewarm, he'll spit you out of your mouth. Like that was understood by the people of the region. They had little aqueducts and from one place, the water always arrived cold from another place. It was really hot, but there was one place where like a particular city where it would the always water arrive. Was tepid and nasty. Yeah, it was tepid and gross and nobody liked it. And so when he, he's talking about the behavior of the people or church in that city. In Laodicea. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, you could have, yeah. That, so that, it's not really like be stoked or be bummed, but man, if you're just like chilling, God's not happy. Yes. So like in the book of Revelation, it talks about that, you know, uh, yeah, uh, be hot or be, uh, you should either be hot or be cold or God will spit you out of his mouth. That is something that the people in Laodicea would understand because they live in a city where there's different, where there's like tepid, gross water that no one wants to drink. And so Paul, I'm sorry, John in, in Revelation is using that to make a point. And then the point is not, yeah, 
yeah. be fiery or be ch- or, or be super laid back. Either Don't, hate God or love God. Yeah, no, yeah. that's and that's not what he's saying. So yes, exactly. Sometimes there are these um, these cultural things um, that you may miss um, um, in your pr- in, in going into that principle statement. So um, that's that middle. I got a question for you about sure. one of those. Okay. So I've heard that taking the Lord's name in vain is not saying like. Oh my God, like that, mm-hmm. you know, like using, using God as a swear, but rather doing something in God's name that he would not have you do. So saying, Jesus wants me to buy this personal jet. Yeah. I'm doing this in Jesus's name. Yeah. That kind of thing. Or God told me we're getting married. Yeah. T- taking God's name <laughs> in yeah, an yeah. action. Is, is that true? Do you know anyone? I don't know. That? I mean, um, um, Quiet Google in the background. <laughs> as, uh, as someone who grew up in the North where swearing is less of a sin than it is in the South. Yeah. Um, uh, there's probably maybe these cultural different things. Um, I think it is when you're talking about taking the Lord's name in vain, that there is a, f- a there is a, a flippancy that one can, uh, have I, I I personally still think that saying like Jesus Christ as a as a sort of an utterance of of exclam- as an exclamation is sort of not appropriate conduct for a Christian. Um, I think both of those things are probably not great. If you're going to say like God told me we're getting married and yeah. <laughs> and um, um, yeah, I don't know. As, um, in, as in most things, there's a uh, Bible Project uh, podcast episode that goes into this. It's from a few years ago. Is but, really? Yeah. What do they say? There's uh, it's similar to what AJ is saying is that there's like a there's a broader way of understanding that than just like the word that's being said. I think their point ended up being more along the lines of like to call yourself a follower of Christ and to live in a dishonorable way. That's also taking God's name in vain. Yeah. Yes. So. Yeah. Fair point. So it's not just like the actual words that are yeah. falling, the sounds that are falling out of your mouth, yes. but it's, mm-hmm. it's all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, so, so getting back to this, this yeah. principle based hermeneutical approach, you are essentially going through stories in scripture or passages in scripture, and you were coming up with principle statements. So, um, uh, for example, that one that I was talking about of putting the, uh, of the ox goring your neighbor, uh, in that passage, it says that if the ox has a habit of escaping and goring people, it says in that passage that the owner of the ox can be put should be put to death. And then there's also, and then later on in the in the same passage, they give a um, um, a pathway for um, sort of financial repercussions instead of death. But you could look at that passage, and you could look at that, and you can say here is biblical. Evidence, or here is a, the, at least according to this Old Testament passage, which is um, uh, using this as an example, you could say that in the moral law of the Old Testament, or even the moral law of the Bible, death penalty has a place. You, you could make right. that as a principle, right? Um, and then, uh, and and then you also. So then the, the question arises: Then what do you do when you have competing? If you can come up with competing principle statements, if you can say according to this verse. Uh, we can interpret this as the Bible's okay with death penalty, and then you go and you look at uh, Christ saying, love your enemies or turn the other cheek, and how then do you apply that into questions about about death penalty, right? Mm. Um, that is um, hard. <laughs> uh, and that sort of, um, uh, when we, uh, that is what people are working towards. So when you are doing a, if you are 
doing theology, if you were wanting to be a systematic theologian, this is what you were doing, is that you were going through all of these passages and you were compiling, let's say if you wanted to do a, if you wanted to do a systematic theology on the nature of the death penalty or the nature of death as a punishment for crimes, according to the Bible, you would go and you would get any, you would get all the passages, all of the stories, all of the examples of where people have been put to death for a crime or there is some sort of, so there's either descriptions of being people, people being put to death for a crime or there are prescriptions. There are actually like statements saying, put someone to death if they do X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. And then you would go and look for all the examples where it seemed like there was going to be um, descriptions of mercy where death was, was necessary or prescriptions where things were actually said uh, about uh, people being put to death for crimes. And you would want to have all of those references and then you would need to do the work of going through every single one and seeing if um, they were, uh, um, if there was no, if they were like, completely contradictory or not. Um, this is the business of this is the business of sort of systematic theology is to say is there a unity of principle on topics in the Bible, and um, so that is that. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. It does. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the things that I tell my students are like, you don't just want a cheap, you don't just want cheap answers. You don't just want to say like, well, here's this one verse and it says this one thing. And then that's sort of the carte blanche proof of a proof text of some sort of principle. And I'm going to sort of run. Like, can I get tattoos? Well, it says no in Exodus. It says, yes, it says, it says, do so, not, you know, mutilators of the flesh or whatever. So therefore no nose piercings or whatever. Yeah. Right. Um, and, um, and, uh, so, um, so yeah, I was to tell my students that you don't want just like cheap cartoon answers. You actually need to do the work yourself of going through and being so familiar with all of these stories and all these examples that you can be able to, uh, to, to, to talk about like, or to be able to have an answer for, for a principled biblical answer for whatever issue is, is arising. Um, this is, yeah, this is the, the work of, of theology. This is the work of sort of systematic theology is, is like going through and saying, like, okay, what is the Bible saying about, well, I'll give you an example. So in, we're, I'm teaching the Old Testament class this year, and we're reading in the Old Testament, um, you got, uh, who is it? You, you got um, Lamech, uh, the seventh generation after Cain, and Lamech goes off and marries two people. First example of, of somebody having two wives. This happens a lot. You've got, uh, I think Esau has a number of wives. Um, uh, you've got Abram, who, and then Abra, Abram, Abraham um, uh, having one wife, but having a bunch, but having a bunch of kids with his with his wife's hand servant, maid servants. And so you need to ask yourself the question of like, is this is this just this just describing the story of what happened? Or is this prescriptive? Is this like, oh, the Bible's totally cool with like polygamy. Polyamory. Yeah, or polyamory. Like, look, Abram had uh, had some concubines. Um, you could very easily just sort of open it up and be like, well, Abraham took his uh, took his wife's handmaid, Hagar, and she gave birth to Ishmael. You can be that like, awesome, like thumbs up. Uh, this is license. So the, you need to be able to have, the, to know the difference between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. 
Maybe in the Ishmael or the uh, the Hagar Abram example, it's a little easier. It gets harder with other things. So mm-hmm. it's harder to know when things are prescriptive or descriptive. Uh, when it comes to what is the Bible, what is the principle, what is the Bible saying about this? Does this include stuff that has maybe changed over time? Like I don't allow women to speak in church. Um, I mean, so when Paul's talking about that, um, yeah, when Paul's talking about um, uh, when he's telling talking about that to the Corinthians. Um, uh, well, yeah, you need to ask yourself that question. Like, what is Paul getting at? Is Paul laying down something prescriptive for all churches at all times? Or is Paul talking about a sp- the specific church in Corinth? Um, and, you know, is there something about the nature of public worship in Corinth that was unruly for the Greeks in a way that maybe wasn't in somewhere else? Like, And that's... that. Um, that is the business of, yeah, this is, this is the, the work that has to be done for people who are reading and, and interpreting these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, an, it's, it's not an easy business. Um, so, uh, that was the going from what it says to dr- driving some sort of principle. There's a middle step in there that if we're talking about something in the new Testament, or sorry, it's talking, talking about something in the old Testament as Christians, there are a number of things that, the um, in the Old Testament that do not stand uh, anymore, like the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, um, uh, in the 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 Christians, the freedom that we have as Christians, are we no longer bound by the kosher laws? For example, um, there are civil laws of the Old Testament that are no longer applicable to us living now. Um, but the moral laws of the Old Testament, for example, we would still be bound by uh, committing murder, committing adultery. Thou sh- you know, those things are still binding. So there are certain things that are um, that the Old Testament we no longer like. We don't have a sacrificial system anymore. We no longer need to kill doves and lambs on Sunday or Saturday um, to co- atone for our sins because of what Christ has done on the cross. So when we go back and we read. Um, you know, about the uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, like we don't have that. That is no longer binding on, on, on Christians. So there, there needs to be that kind of understanding too, is that we, we, there is a, a change that happens in, in, this, in the New Testament that um, changes some of the, of the commands of the Old Testament. Um, cool. And then the last thing when you've done this is you say, okay, I've come up with a principle. I've been able to come up with like sort of these principle statements from the Bible. And then the trick is to come up with application. So then you think of uh, examples that you have, or you think of how do you apply this in your life? So if we're going to use that example of, you know, take care of your stuff, if I had, if I had a chainsaw, that was real. I was. It was not sharp. It had not been oiled. And the last time I was using this chainsaw, the chain jumped, and off of it. And um, and I just sort of like nonchalantly kind of put the chain back onto it. And AJ asked to borrow my chainsaw, and I lent it to him. And AJ uses the chainsaw and injures himself with my busted chainsaw. Uh, and I and, and I was like, "Wow, man, that sucks, AJ." Sucks Better to buy suck. Me a new one. Yeah, sucks to suck that you hurt yourself on this chainsaw. Somebody could very legitimately say that, as a Christian man, I am out of bounds on what I, that I am at fault for what I have done. Using that same passage about if your ox gores your neighbor, 
that you were at fault and you knew about it. Like you, your, your ox had a habit of jumping the chain. Yeah. No. Maybe, maybe you had, yeah, maybe you had given it to somebody else and they mm-hmm. got hurt using yeah. that chainsaw. Didn't if this it. had never happened, if my chainsaw, it was like perfect all the time and I took care of it and it just so happened that that one time you, you dinked a rock and it hit and it like the chain went in your leg. Yep. Stuff happens. Stuff happens. Mm-hmm. But if, if there is a, like morally, if I know that this chainsaw is, uh, uh, is problematic, that is a, uh, you know, sort of a text in the Bible that should, that somebody, that Thomas could very easily say, like, Graham, you are at fault for this. Not just because of the, the laws of the United States or not just because, um, like, the emotions that you have towards your injured friend should compel you. But you could say that you are, you know, if you are somebody who says that script, scripture is binding in your life, this is an example of you being of, of you ignoring it uh, to your sort of soul's peril. And Thomas would be right if he confronted me with that. If, as I was reading, you know, uh, Deuteronomy, you know, it's probably in Leviticus or, or Numbers or whatever. During my devotional life, if I read that passage and my heart was convicted because I was like, "Oh man, I just uh, AJ hurt himself with my chainsaw," like you know, that. I should be convicted of that. That is then the Bible sort of, the inter- that is a right interpretation of that that is bringing to bear on my action, right? It's not what, when uh, Moses wrote that, he did not have Graham Donaldson in 2023 in mind. Right. He wrote it for a nomadic desert people um, to, so that they could live with one another in harmony. Um, but it, the 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 truthness of that statement and the the uh, the moral rightness of that system is still binding on on people who call in the name who people who, of the book people who say that the Bible is binding in their hearts today. So if I do that for AJ and AJ hurts himself, I am at fault, and the Bible says so. Sure. Um, Cool. So those are the five steps. Can you review them? So it was, what does this passage literally say? Like, can you just sort of rephrase it and, and sort of get all the details? Okay, the literal. The literal. Um, and then the middle step is, is there anything culturally that we don't understand that they would have understood that would help under, that help us to understand? So, so like the put Laodicea. It, put, it in context. put it in context. Is is it written for an audience and it is using things that they would be knowledgeable about? Still number two? This is That's, that's number two. That's so number what does two. it actually say? Put it what in context. What does it say? Um, uh, is there any difference between us and the, and the original listeners? Sure. Number three, can you turn what is said and then using the context, if you needed any, um, into a principle statement? Principle? Can you make it into a principle statement? Okay. So, ox escapes and gores your neighbor, principle, take care of your things. There's your principle statement. Um, and then, if this is in the Old Testament, is there something about the New Testament that changes this principle? Is there something about the revelation that we have in Christ that changes this? Okay. In this instance, there wouldn't be, because it's still uh, this is this is we're talking about sort of a moral thing, a sure. moral law. Uh, I may not give you an ox, but if I give you my chainsaw, if um, if you were getting mad at me as a Christian, AJ, for eating lobster, I could be like, well, we're not bound by the kosher laws anymore, and you'd be like, it is, you know. You are being shellfish. <laughs> Heyo. Unbelievable. Um, and uh, sorry. 
And then the last one is application, yeah. is then being able to sort of take those principles and apply them in contexts that we find ourselves in. And this is going to sort of bring us to the third way of interpreting the Bible. They're, they're really qu- quite hand in hand. And so, so, so far we've had way number one, which is personal devotion. Which is sort of personal devotion. And this is where you have a lot more sort of leeway on, on uh, like, that context and those principles, like, but shouldn't you know that stuff if you're doing personal You should, devotion? but let me, um, let me, uh, okay. Um, Maybe it's just that you're not Let me to... give you an example of one that I've been thinking of recently. So theologically, I know that we cannot earn our salvation through works, right? Like th- that's a theological pr- principle that Christians have, that the, the, the atoning blood of Christ is that which covers covers the uh, um, uh, our sins. Right. And there's nothing that we can do that will sort of like, earn us in, into heaven. Um, but there can be um, um, there can be times where you are reading the Bible and you can be convicted of your own lack of striving for righteousness. Um, and so I could be reading a passage where, I'm trying to think of an example, where um, um, uh, I don't know, you could be reading about the faithfulness of Abraham and knowing that that is accounted to him as faith, that is accounted to him as righteous. Or you could be reading a thing where it says, Enoch walked with the Lord and uh, and he was a righteous man. So like in your mind, you can, you can know that um, um, like any sort of saving of Enoch or saving of Abraham, somehow Christ's blood retroactively like theologically bails them out. But you can, in your own personal life, being like, I need to be a, I need to, I know I can't earn my salvation, but I should, I should act, I should act a little bit more like I should be. Yeah. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, that is not a correct theological position. Maybe you want to be a better man. But you can sort of read it and be like, I know I can't earn my salvation through works, but I kind of feel like I should be acting a little more righteous, uh, and I should be, I know I can't, but I should be trying to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you, I, you would not stand up in front of, of a group of people and say, like, you need, to, you need to pretend, you need to act as if you can earn your salvation by, you know, you should stop doing wicked things. Right. Um, but you can have that thought in your own mind while you are convicted of reading scripture. Does this make sense? Yeah. Jeez maybe, Louise, I should probably do better than I'm doing. Maybe this, maybe yeah. that's a bad example. That's, but that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, or if you're doing that Lectio Divina where you are putting yourself in the story, and where, or you're putting yourself in some sort of healing and Christ says, pick up your mat and walk. And in your own personal devotion, actually, Christ is saying that to you. He's not saying it to the cripple. In your mind, he's actually looking at you and saying, pick up your mat and walk, right? Um, That can be a profound thing for the individual, but it would be inappropriate if that was the conclusion. That if you, that would be inappropriate if you said, this is what the Bible is saying. Like, this is the principle of that passage. The principle is that I am, I am the person who God is healing. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's he's healing the leper. But in, your, but in your sort of personal devotional life, you can be the leper. Does this, does this make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, okay. And then the last one that, we're, that is then... Um, how then do you use all of these principles of the Bible? So if you are a biblically literate person, that means you are somebody that has a handle on all of these biblical principles. 
and the right interpretation of them through getting these principles through, you know, the reading of the stories, understanding the context, and um, and uh, uh, and coming up with with principles based on it. So if you have that kind of knowledge, that repository of principles, um, then the, the other way of reading the Bible is the exegetical way. This is where the Bible is then being used to preach to people. Is being and one way you can think about this is using scripture to um, either like correct faults in a group of people or to speak into the world that or to speak into something culturally that is happening right now, right? Um, so um, trying to think of an example. Well, I guess the corny one would be when the, when the pastor decides that they are going to do a sermon series on the book of Nehemiah, when they are going to do a, like, church building project, <laughs> right? right? Like, you need to raise some mm-hmm. money because you need to fix the, you need to fix the uh, sanctuary or whatever. And so you are going to sp- spend time as a congregation, like, going through and reading Nehemiah because mm-hmm. that's the book where they spent time rebuilding the temple, right? right? Um, that is a... The pastor or the person or whoever is preaching or, the, or even if you were going through that as your small group Bible devotions in your church, the way that you are reading and, and, and interacting with the Bible um, in that sense is kind of – it's not completely different than, than a hermeneutics where you're trying to spin out biblical principles, but you're sort of more applying that to a present issue or a present reality. And this is – this is the other side of theology. So systematic theology is trying to come up with all of those biblical principles. But then you can have theolo- you can have those biblical principles as um, responses or as like um, um, figuring out what to do with other c- sort of cultural forces that you have in the world. So um, uh, I, I know, um, trying to think of an example that's not controversial. Um, uh, so in the, in the, in the later 19th century, early 20, early 20th century, a lot of theologians really needed to think about what does the Bible say about, um, economic systems? Because now all of a sudden we would have clashes of different kinds of economic systems with the rise of Marxism Mm -hmm. and sort of a much more robust capitalism, um, and, um, and the sort of industrial revolution that is really separating men from their labor in a new way. This mm-hmm. technology has changed a lot of the way that human beings are living. And so then what is going to be the biblical, how do we build a theology around this? And um, this is a hard thing to do. They're sort of like, um, how can I say this? Um, there's a way where the principles of the Bible are used to interpret the world around it. And then there's other ways where like the philosophies of the world end up getting superimposed on the language of the Bible. Sure. Um, and I think that that second path is misguided is that if you were going to use, if you're going to, so like we can even use um, um, sort of uh, a Marxist economic theory uh, or even just sort of Marxist critical theory, there is a branch of theology where 
that school of thought then has gotten superimposed onto the language of the Bible and you get something very different. Um, and it's called liberation theology. So liberation theology is a branch of, um, um, it, it's, a, it's an interpretation, it's, use, it's, yeah, it's an interpretation of scripture that is influenced by, by Marx. Uh, and we've talked about uh, Marx on this podcast before. Maybe did a great episode on, on doing that with history. Right. I don't, do you remember, what was that? I can't remember. History of private life. Yeah. It was a, the, that episode's the one where we did this whole review of this, of this chapter of this book and I'm just describing all the stuff and then like the kicker at the end is like, haha, this is critical theory. And then we end up having this big long um, in between afterwards of like the point of that episode was, uh, you know, some of some of these tools can be helpful, yes. but it's like kind of a you just notice that you get the same themes over and over again because you come in with this interpretive framework and then like, lo and behold, the Romans fit this interpretive framework perfectly. Yeah. And like that's kind of the, the weakness of it. Yes. So um, I guess uh, the thing we're kind of building up towards this is that. Um, the Bible should, but the Bible and sort of principle-based hermeneutical approach should be something that is like um, a light that is shed on certain cultural things, things that are happening culturally. We can and we can take the opposite spectrum of of, of like a critical theory coin, and we can talk about like um, I don't know. Let's say if you had a nation that decided that they were the same thing as like as Israel. So when you read the Bible. Um, let's say when Canadians read the Bible and they said that God is going to bless the nation of Israel, Canadians were like, that's us boys. Um, and they were going to build up some sort of like national or ethnic identity about being God's chosen people on earth. And then they were going to use the story of the old Testament to like plan their policies around. Like that has happened in history. Uh, and, and that is, that is, that is where, um, some other kind of ideology is then using the language of the Bible as, as like a, uh, a as like a prop or as like a, like a, a delivery device. Okay. Whereas the other way, whereas, um, the other way is how it's supposed to be. The Bible is supposed to be the thing that can, um, uh, then sort of shed its light on the, on the sort of the systems or the ideology of the world. So it is quite legitimate to say, okay, We've got, you know, in the early 20th century, we've got all of these questions about um, who is man in relation to his work and what is the relationship between man and money and investment and work and labor and class. We didn't think about this in the Middle Ages, and so Middle Age theologians didn't really talk about this. But now that it's happening in our world, then we need to say, okay, what does the Bible say about the relationship, about these kinds of things? Well, let's go through the Bible and look at uh, the principles that we can be derived from vis-a-vis uh, um, uh, -vis these issues that we're looking at. That's the correct way to do it. The incorrect way to do it is to say like, ah, every time the Bible mentions the word sin, what they really mean is, you know, the, uh, the bourgeois, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, sort of um, keeping the proletariat down. And that's the sin of the world is that we have this sort of like, um, when, when, yes, or when we talk about the line of ham, what we really mean is the bourgeois. And when we talk about the line of Shem, what we really mean is the proletariats. And they're always going to be at war. And the Canaanites are always going to be the overbearing. And God is going to liberate, liberate us from the Canaanites through social revolution, right? Like when you start doing that, you're, you're taking the story and the language of the Bible and you're using it as just a delivery device for some kind of other ideology. And that, the, that history has happened um, a lot 
in sort of the history of, the, of, of scripture in the world. And it's not just Marxism, it's happened with American nationalism. With, with American nationalism, some sort of sense that I was being tongue-in-cheek. I didn't want to sort of call it out too much. But there is kind of like a burgeoning and growing America. There's always been this little like America is God's country. And so, I mean, well, George Bush uh, Jr., when he was uh, – W. Bush, when he was president, America is the shining light on the hill. Right. That's an interpretation of when Christ is talking about his people being – uh, uh, being the city that should not be hidden. Was Jesus saying that it was America? You know, like, well, that's an interpretation that people are having. Then we... Then, Seems like we're forgetting about the Vatican. Uh, no. <laughs> we, literally mean, God's country. It, <laughs> um, I'm just saying. You're just like, saying. How, how are we claiming God's country when we've got the Vatican? Didn't we get a message from people saying that, like, we are a lot... Where we got an email saying that we're very Catholic. We're Catholic apologists. We're Catholic I think, apologists I, I think that's at this what it's point. Yeah. Yeah. Catholic like, light? Is that what they Catholic light. Yeah, we, get that, we get that, too. Um, yeah. Right? So then, okay, let's take that as an example. <laughs> then America is, is the shining light on a hill. Well, the passage that's being referenced to is... Well, Christ is talking to his disciples. Christ is saying that... Uh, and so... Do we see it? So then is God's people like a nation in a specific, specific period of history, or is it the church, those who call on the name of Christ? Are those one and the same? This is, these are hard things to, to, uh, to piece. Actually, I don't think it's that hard. I think the first one is wrong. Um, but yes, uh, ethnic nationalism. Use our, also, um, forgetting about like the whole Midwest, it's pretty yeah. flat. I don't know if we can claim the hill, <laughs> if we don't really yeah, have no many hills. hills. There's not very many like, hills. Switzerland? I can believe it more. Could be. Right? Yeah. Um, the history of uh, race-based slavery has used passages about how when Noah's kid saw him naked and made fun of him, Noah said that you are – cursed is going to be you, Ham, your kids are going to be servants to all. People took that and interpreted that saying, well, because a lot of Ham's descendants were in Africa, Africans go. are going to be the servants of, of people. And then people took that to mean – that this is this is now going to be. Hey, look, there's biblical justification God for ordained slavery. There's biblical justification for race-based slavery on people from Africa. Mm-hmm. Well, that is taking, uh, uh, you know, a current ideology and using the Bible as like a delivery vehicle for it. Whereas the other way around is like, um, well, uh, the history of, of of the end of slavery is also the history of of. Christians looking at the scripture and realizing that this is a, a wrong practice. You've got, um, what's the British man? Um, William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce. Um, you have, you have uh, during the, uh, um, uh, the, the whole movement about, uh, uh, of um, the abolitionist movement, you have, you know, people preaching about Philemon, the book of Philemon and Onesimus. And, you, you know, so you have, I would argue, the right hermeneutical, principle-based interpretation of Scripture to come to the conclusion that the enslavement of a, of a person is wrong. Mm-hmm. And then you have the opposite theology. You have the superimposing theology that's using languages of, using words of the Bible to actually support something else and using the Bible as a delivery vehicle. Uh, and then you have sort of this, uh, you have something that Christians should look at and say is quite abhorrent. So that's kind of my kind of the thing that I was trying to get at is that just because someone says the Bible says X about Y doesn't mean that 
a Christian, even if it's a pastor, even if it's somebody from the pulpit, doesn't mean that somebody should be like, well, yes, this is, the Bible says, says this about something, that you need to be going through that, um, that, uh, uh, that, that sort of theological process to, be, to really say, like, is this the principle that Scripture is saying? Because you can, you know, you can twist it into some pretty nasty things. Um, you can, twi- you know, um, uh, the Bible can be sort of a, uh, a delivery vehicle for sort of critical theory Marxism, for some sort of ethnocentric nationalism, for um, uh, other examples have been slavery. What have been other examples? I mean... Um, uh, Everything you just said. Maybe yeah. Those are big ones. Um, so then... Uh, what does this have to do with exegesis? So that means that people who are preaching scripture, if they're wanting to use the Bible to talk about current issues, or if they, if people see like problems in the world and they are wanting to correct those problems by means of the Bible, you're in a pretty dangerous position because if you are going to, because um, let's say you wanted to, um, you were concerned about, I don't know, injustice and poverty. Um, the Bible says a lot about injustice and poverty, um, but there are two flavors of of t- preaching about injustice and poverty, and uh, um, and uh, uh, one would be that sort of that principle based. What does the Bible say about orphans and widows and justice? And the other one is uh, is um, sort of using the language of the Bible as kind of like a delivery vehicle for some other ideology who the rest of that ideology is may, is going to be in conflict with other biblical principles. That's kind of... So. But like, okay, so take your widows and orphans comment. Okay, so you got to take care of the widows and orphans. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the point there. Mm-hmm. You're saying that... Because then the question is, okay, how do we do that? And, like, you know, we need government structures to care for these people versus private donations should... Like, that distinction there is not addressed by scripture? Like, is that what you're saying? To um, latch onto one implementation prematurely is to kind of skip over what the Bible says about other stuff? Um, let me think. Um, potentially, I guess. Um, um, that was a, a, a sort of a different train of thought than I was going Sorry, because I, I, I thought, because like in terms of principle, mm-hmm. you, you, you would expect broad agreement among Christians of like, we should take care yes. of this group of people. But then is that kind of as far as you can take things? That, that, then we as Christians should support our like social institutions that yeah. we have set up in America to That's take care of people yeah. versus we should take up a, an offering collection right. today. Yeah, and I think... Um, um, th- well, then that raises the next question. Okay, then what is our relationship as the church to a government and its institutions? Uh-huh. So should we really be, um, should we be directing all of our attention to um, sort of supporting the, like if, if we live in a, in, a, in a country that's got like social, socialized welfare for the poor, right. then is it our Christian responsibility to be uh, upholding and under and, un, and holding up those institutions is that what the church is that how we interpret taking care of widows right. and orphans because America's got a social welfare program we as Christians should be doing everything we can to support that program right. voting for that program right. uh, um, um, putting more money into our taxes for that program or mm-hmm. whatever or 
do we so that or do we not do we do that in a lo, in our sort of localized Local. body with our church? Well, now you would have to say, okay, we've got a new issue to, issue that yeah. we need to know what the uh, what the biblical principle is on that. Yeah. Um, what is the principle of? I guess in that instance, we would be looking at um, subsidiaries. Like, is our widows and orphans something that should be taken care of in a local setting, mm-hmm. municipal setting? federal setting, does the Bible have any sort of principle about the propriety of those subsidiaries, right? Does that make sense? It does. Um, There might be more in between. I'm curious if you would think that kind of there should be then kind of the one Christian position. Is there one position on... Yeah, the Bible. Thank you, right. (laughs) Of which there are no... Yeah, yeah. Um, And again, that might be in between, but um, would be curious what you think. Like, because then you get to a point of like people who disagree with you are like not Christian. You know, you know what I mean? Or like I see what, yeah. they, they hold a, uh, non-Christian positions, mm-hmm. which uh, there are many denominations. There are many groups within Christianity with whom you disagree. Um, yeah. Be- I mean, I, then it all comes down to, it all comes down to the, uh, um, like what's, let's, let's go th- let's look at the math. Let's go through the, how are you deriving that conclusion on what you're supporting, what you're not supporting? Um, is that just something that, you're doing because, like, um, I don't know, because you're living in the Netherlands and this is how Dutch people right. react, live. Or is it actually, like, coming from biblical conviction? Sure. Um, and those two things don't have to be exclusive. Um, but I, I think it's just worth knowing, am I doing X, Y, or Z because this is culturally the way things are done in this country? Or am I doing this because it's, uh, 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 this is coming from a, a place of biblical conviction? I guess I'm kind of, me personally, I'm, I'm kind of tuned into this because I live in a place that I'm not from. Right. And so, um, uh, uh, and th- there's just things in America that are done very differently than in Canada when it comes to social welfare programs and these kinds of things. Right. Like it kind of blows my mind the amount of money that people give to charity in America. Mm. Like really? It's, yeah, well, yeah. Okay. It's, it's astronomical. It's crazy. Because that's just um, not a thing. It's just, it's le- when I lived in the Netherlands, it's less of a thing. When yeah. I lived in, in Canada, it's a little bit more than the Netherlands. But there's just the, like, well, we pay 30% taxes. Like, shouldn't that cover it? Right. Um, you know, and those are just sort of culturally different things. Is one more Christian than the other? I, that's a great question. Right. And then that would be, uh, you have to go and, 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 like I said, do the math. Sort of, um, is, 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 is this just cultural expressions? different ways that groups of people have decided to tackle problems, or is there one that is um, more Bible than, than another? Is it interesting? Yeah. Um, I, we, I was going to get into talking about allegories, but I think we've, we sort of moved off to a different, a, a different topic, so we won't get into that. But just kind of to summarize, like, as Christians who are um, people of a book, people of a text, like, the no uh, the interpretation of that text and then uh, and then its authority that it has in our lives is 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 a hard thing. This is not an easy thing, but making it easy creates lots of more problems. Like if you cartoonify and simplify it, um, you can get into well, you can get into in, into a whole host of issues. One of the the, the reasons why I think. And how an ideology can kind of like take the language of the Bible and then um, you end up like eating that ideology thinking you're eating the Bible Mm. is quite 
easy to have happen to people is because it is more of a cartoon version than the business of the complicated work of biblical interpretation. Like, I think it's a lot easier to say, to, to fall into some sort of like, um, when the Bible talks about Israel, what they really mean is Texas. And I, as a Texan, am God's chosen people. Like, that's such an easy thing to do. Are you than... telling me it's easier not to think hard than it is thinking hard? <laughs> is that what you're saying? I am. Yeah. It's easier to be lazy? Yeah. And I'm not sure I buy it. And <laughs> my f- personal fear is that um, in an age of hot takes and internet and and decreasing biblical literacy, I think there is a lot more, v- like intellectual damage that is going to happen by the Bible being used by individuals or just by, or even just by ideologies of people without realizing it. And then you're going to get into this whole mass confusion thing. And I think some, I think the ones we've been alluding to are, are there. I think the Christian nationalism one is a problem. I think, um, so that, that, that cultural Marxist liberation theology. And that's one that's like, that's not a new one. Like that's Ratzinger's whole deal. Like yeah, Cardinal Ratzinger, who was the Pope, like that's, that's, that's coming back from the seventies. That's been around for a long time. And there's probably other ones that we can think of. Um, um, so it's, so then what if for the well-meaning Christian, for the, for the person who like doesn't want to be bamboozled by Bible language, um, um, but really wants to like authentically um, live a life that is formed by the conviction of God's word, there's no substitute for, like, the in-depth knowledge of it. And, Get in the mix. And, and yeah. yeah. And I'm not saying that you need to go and keep it a giant chart list of all of the principal statements that you can about certain topics. It's not going to hurt. Um, but it also helps that there are people doing this. Like you can, you can look up commentaries and concordances and Mm -hmm. there are people whose job it is to Mm -hmm. look up all of these Mm -hmm. things and and sort of do it for you. Yeah. So let me give you, so a last little thing and maybe I'll end with this is then like. Well, hold on. So far, I just want to, I just want to review where we've been. So the first way is devotional. Yeah. The second way is true exegesis with your five steps. True hermeneutics, which is five steps. Yeah. Five steps, which is what is it literally saying? Mm -hmm. Put it in the context. Mm Mm-hmm. Coming a principle, deriving principle. Come with state. a principle. There's a New Testament, shop, the Old Testament. Shop the principle around for the rest of, you yeah. know, like, test it with the rest of the Bible. Yeah. And then, are you laughing right yeah, now? This is very funny. I'm Sorry. Just trying to, I'm trying great. to help the listener. Mm-hmm. And then number five is Then how would you apply it? So then yeah, if yeah. you have this principle and you know that, then how can you be able to apply this principle in the wild when okay. you see examples? Yeah. And the third, the third way is it's basically proof texting. Is no, the third way is no. no is uh, I was um, talking about then another. The other relationship that we have is the one from the pulpit. So the relation. So by hearing right. God's word preached, and when a pastor or uh, a priest is preaching the Bible, um, they are um, off, they are either doing the hermeneutic thing. Um, or um, they are, or they're, a modern or they're trying and... to, or they're trying to maybe right or wrong in the congregation, which is which is a good thing. Pastors should be doing this. Um, but if you are going to be delivering a word to people, if you're going to be saying like, "This is what the Bible tells us to do about X, Y, or Z," you are in. Um, you have like, well, the millstone and the child uh, uh, passage should be at the forefront of your mind because there is. Um, um, lots of easy cartoon ways to use the Bible to actually package different kinds of ideologies. And okay. I think, I mean, 
coming into, into politics, like this happens uh, during the 4th of July services, this happens during election cycles, this happens during, you know. Um, uh, it does not happen during <laughs> election cycles. Right, so this is, um, anyway, so. What, um, what about the fourth way, reading it like a book? Did you have anything to say about the narrative style? Not necessarily, I mean, no, I didn't have anything planned to say about that. Okay. You can. Um, Where should I start? But, uh, um, beginning. <laughs> Okay. Good place to start. No, it, actually, one way you could do is you could you could say like, all right, let's um, let's compile a list of biblical metaphors and and just sort of like see are there metaphors that repeat themselves over and over? Are there structures that repeat themselves over and over and over? Like creation, fall, redemption, these kinds of. You mean like that question we just had in our AMA and didn't answer very well? Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> we got there eventually. So then. Um, <laughs> The way that this can sort of play out practically in your life is I'm, I'm always very sensitive to the way that churches deliver sermons, that the preachers deliver. I, there was a while where I went to a church where it was clear that the preacher was delivering his sermons purely from his own devotional life. And over time, the church ended up becoming wrapped up in the persona and character of the pastor. That's a problem. In fact, the whole church fell apart. <laughs> I was at a church kind and, of the same thing. Yeah, and, and, and it was because the, the sort of the fluctuations of the, uh, the devotional life of the pastor ended up being the flavor of church. And I don't think that's a right. I don't think that's right. Um, there, and then there, there you could... Um, um, and then so then the, the other ways that, that preaching often happens is you have um, sermons that are going to be on topics... I'm going to pick a topic like marriage or like fasting, mm-hmm. and we are going to talk about that topic. Or the other preaching is for the next eight weeks, we are going to be doing um, the, the entire book of 1 Corinthians, and then that's the preaching. Um, and people who are pastoring or people who are um, going to be leading Bible studies or, or doing groups or, uh, or who are in some sort of like... Um, role where they are, are delivering other sermons or, or thoughts using the Bible teaching, need to, need to sort of say, am I going to be someone who's going to be more topical or am I going to be someone who is more um, sort of book preaching? Personally, I think the book preaching is a lot more fruitful. Um, but anyway, that, that's a whole other, maybe we can talk more about that in the in-between. Sounds good. But hopefully by the end of this, we sort of realize like... Um, Faithful Christianity also involves like work, like, um, and this is why living. This is why going to church and being in community is so important because it can oftentimes seem so uh, um, overwhelming if it's just you. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, I Thanks, got Graham. yeah. That's uh, those are my thoughts. Oh, that's that's sort of the um, if we're talking about. Biblical interpretation. Yeah, you talking about that. Your your church may have been a pastor's sort of devotional life, sort of leaking out into the congregation. Yeah. I feel like I went to church, went to a church that did the modern sensibility, put that framework on the scripture, and it ended up. It's weird because when that happens, you sort of get a specific flavor, and the flavor of this church was don't judge anybody, and also our lives are terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a lot of preaching on how to deal with sorrow and how to deal with hardship and loss, and I get it. Like that's those are important things, but. It, it eclipsed all other, almost all other types of preaching. Yep. Which was tough. Uh, so, yes. Yep. That was tough. 
Well, thank you all for listening. This has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. You can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash classical stuff. That's where we post our in-between episodes and our monthly AMAs. We're going to record an in-between right after this where we'll keep talking about the, the stuff that Graham was bringing up during his episode. You can email us, the guys at classicalstuff.net, or you can find us on... It's not called Twitter. What's it called? Is it X. It's literally just called X. It's just called X. It's whatever. You I mean, we have a letter already with that name. It just it gets confusing. Um, so can I just still call it Twitter? You can call it Twitter. I would. Okay. Yeah. You can find us on Twitter at Classical Stuff, C-L-S-S-C-A-L Stuff. And, oh, we're online, classicalstuff.net. So thank you all for listening, and we will talk with you again soon. Bye. Ciao. Bye.